Welcome everyone to the show. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host, Maggie Thompson from Generation Progress. Uh, this hour, we've got a whole lot of stuff that's happening in D.C. here. There's healthcare, care, uh, but there's also, well, everybody's eyes are on the Hill. A lot that's happening in the agencies and in the Trump administration elsewhere that we don't want to forget about because we got to keep our eyes on that, too. So I have a great friend and colleague, Alexis Goldstein. She's the senior policy analyst at Americans Financial Reform here in the studio with us in D.C. to talk us through basically how this administration is rolling back protections for students that got ripped off by predatory schools. So this is something that affects tens of thousands of students and they're trying to slip it under the rug during a really busy week. So we gotta keep track of it. Welcome to the show, Alexis. Thanks so much for having me, Maggie. Awesome, well, and folks, as as we're going through the show, if you have any questions, just remember you can just call 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. All right, so Alexis, so this is kind of a complicated issue, but really I think that the rights of these students are pretty simple. Um, you know, there are a lot of students that went to predatory, shady for-profit schools like ITT Tech and Corinthian and now just have a ton of student debt they can't pay back. So can you just like walk us through what borrow defense is and what the basic premise of this protection is? So believe it or not, there is a regulation that has been in place since the mid-90s. This is not a new regulation that says if your school breaks the law, specifically if it breaks state law, you have a right to have your federal student loans canceled. Um, this has not been something that a lot of people knew about in the past, so not the Department of Education was not interested in advertising this fact, but everyone currently has this right. Um, if the school that you attend breaks the law, you have a right to have your federal student loans canceled. And the reason for that is when schools take federal student loan money, they basically agree to a certain set of principles that the Department of Education sets for them and a certain set of standards. And so if they violate those principles by breaking the law, the logic goes, you know, your federal student loans, mm-hmm. you should not have to repay them because you didn't adhere to these standards. Um, in the last year of the Obama administration, the Department of Education updated that existing regulation. Um, and one of there were sort of two changes that made it better that I think are pretty important. One has to do with um, bans on class action lawsuits. So Mm -hmm. a lot of students who went to these predatory schools, a lot of them had the same kind of bad behavior. They were subject to, for example, people would take out loans in their name without their knowledge, Mm -hmm. forging signatures, pressuring them to re-enroll when they were in the middle of taking an exam, like pulling them out of exams saying, hey, Mm -hmm. you want to sign on this dotted line and re-enroll? And so you might say, okay, well, why don't those students all get together and join a class action lawsuit and sue the school? And most of the reason is most of those schools actually had bans on class action lawsuits. So one of the things that the Obama administration did in its final year was to revise these existing regulations to put a ban Mm -hmm. on class action bans, if that the double negative (laughs) makes sense, basically to ensure that if you were a student who went to a school that ripped you off and you don't have a ton of money, um, you can't sue them on, well, you can't sue them anyway because another thing buried in the fine print was you had to go through this secretive process called arbitration. But basically, the point was the Obama administration was trying to make it easier to hold these schools accountable. Um, so that's where we were prior to the Trump administration. <laughs> so the role's pretty simple. You shouldn't have to sign away 
your legal rights just to get into a classroom. Right. And you have a right to have your debt canceled if the school breaks the law. So that's sort of the baseline of -hmm. what borrower defense is about. Awesome. And you talked a little bit about it. And just so people who are listening who maybe aren't familiar with some of these predatory schools know, just, you know, what is the type of behavior or red flags or things that some of these schools would do? I know when I first started learning about this issue, uh, you know, it was shocking to me some of the things that these schools get away with and the behaviors that a lot of students um, who get sort of trapped by them have to put up with. So they would regularly lie about their job placement rates. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine going to a seminar about, hey, here's our great school. We're going to teach you how to be a paralegal. 95 percent, excuse me, 95 percent of our students get jobs after graduation. Mm -hmm. 90 percent of our student gets jobs after graduation. It turns out pretty much across the board at a lot of the schools that have since collapsed, like Corinthian, like ITT Mm -hmm. Tech, and a lot of schools that still exist, those were just complete completely made up, not based in fact, fabricated numbers, and that's illegal. Um, Another thing that we saw at a lot of these schools is in order to juice those numbers, um, they would do things like pay employers to hire their graduates for one or two days, Mm. um, classify that as a job, um, to try and juice these numbers. Because again, to sort of go back to the earlier thing about how the Department of Education has certain standards, one of those standards is you need to sort of be able to make sure that people are getting jobs after you graduate if you want to receive federal student loan money. So they would do all of these very illegal things to juice their numbers, or they would just straight up lie about them mm-hmm. and not even bother to do some shady things. Another thing that they would do is they would um, enroll people who weren't qualified for the sort of ultimate job. So for example, in certain states, you cannot be a paralegal if you have a prior conviction on your record. They would not tell people that. They would enroll them in these programs, even though they were totally unqualified and could never become a paralegal. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they would have trained people in nursing, for example, yeah. but they actually wouldn't be giving them enough training so they could sit for the exam that was required in the state um, totally. to become a nurse. So I think the best way to summarize it is mass deception about job placement, <laughs> yes. also mass Giant deception ripoff. about the kind of loans you would take out. Yep. So a lot of people were lied to and said this will be a full scholarship or you'll just have grant money come to turn out. They actually would take out loans in people's names without their knowledge, and then they would leave the school with all this debt when they were told at the beginning, no, this won't cost you a single penny. Totally. And I think one of the striking things to me is just about how much more expensive some of these schools are than a lot of traditional, you know, when we think about vocational education and, uh, you know, going and getting an associate's degree to get a job. Like I, I, growing up in Wisconsin, always thought about technical colleges. A lot of people think about community colleges. But the sort of distinction is that so many of these schools are publicly traded for profits and uh, are making a lot of money off of enrolling just a large amount of students without any accountability to make sure that those students are getting good outcomes. Yeah, I think it's helpful to go back um, to the Senate a few years ago actually put together a report in the committee that handles health care and education. This was Senator Tom Harkin, who's no longer in mm-hmm. the Senate, but they put together this report that showed that for-profit colleges generally spent a quarter of their revenue on advertising. And they so 25% of their money was being spent on advertising. So if listeners have ever seen those really inspiring University Glossy. of Phoenix ads <laughs> with someone in the library until the lights go out and you walk away from it and you're like, wow, that was an inspiring advertisement. I hope you enjoyed that advertisement because your tax dollars mm-hmm. are going to help pay for that advertisement. What? Um, 
<laughs> and so the Senate, the Senate committee also found that often they spend more money on advertising than they do on instruction. Yep. So these are schools that are basically, uh, if folks are familiar with the term call center, right? They're mm-hmm. really heavy on recruiting. They're really heavy on giving you the sweet talk to get you to sign up. They spend a lot more money on that than they actually do totally. on teachers and instructors. Yeah, and I, and I know we've talked a lot about this. I think one of the most egregious examples is the University of Phoenix who spent over $150 million to um, be the sponsor for the Arizona Cardinals stadium in Phoenix, despite the fact that they don't even have a football team, not that that really matters. But just the idea that a school will be spending education dollars on flashy TV ads and stadium deals instead of on education. That should sort of tell people a lot about the value they're actually getting from some of these schools. So the nicer the commercials, the more questions to ask. Yes. Um, Well, you know, then, so this rule, so the idea is if you were ripped off by a school, they lied to you about the program, the qualifications, whatever it is, you should be able to get your your money back. Um, And there's a July 1st deadline for some of these students from schools like Heald and Corinthian to get their money back, but that's not not happening is that right right? so uh, so just to rewind we we had that original rule from the 90s that says if the school breaks the law you get to apply to have your federal student loans canceled there's a sort of second so there's two things that can happen if you attend a predatory school one is that you're there when it closes and then you're eligible for something called a closed school discharge Um, a lot of people don't know that exists so they don't know to apply so the new rule from Obama said that if you don't apply and three years pass we're gonna automatically get you your closed school discharge without you having to apply Betsy DeVos hit pause Mm -hmm. on that update to the rule and so all of these people who are gonna start to get their uh, their money back automatically who attended these Corinthian schools that closed um, they will no longer receive those closed school discharges Awesome. Well, we, we are going to just take a short break before we're back with Alexis from Americans for Financial Reform, um, talking about how we can get students ripped off by their schools their money back and how Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos are trying to stop that. We'll be right back. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. All right, everyone. Welcome back. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host, Maggie Thompson from Generation Progress. I'm in the studio with Alexis Goldstein from Americans for Financial Reform. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about predatory schools, for-profit schools, how do people get their money back if they've been ripped off by a school? And how is the Trump administration and Betsy DeVos sort of colluding to stop people from getting their money back? Um, So, uh, you know, we actually had a couple callers over the break um, who had some questions and comments. It seems like this has just really hit a nerve with people that maybe have had experience with these schools. So we're going to go first to Omar um, on the line from Portland, Oregon. Omar, are you there? Yes, I am. How's it going? Uh, it's good. It's good. Welcome to the show, Omar. You know, I'm sick and tired the more I watch the news and they say they're gonna, they don't have to pay back to schools or even businesses can get away. What they're doing is making legal, legalizing, ripping off people like it's no big deal. These people that rip, people, people that rip us off, they don't have to worry about where their next payment is going to come. They don't got to worry about if they're going to be able to feed their families. They don't care about that. All they care about is how they can get money and treat people any way they want. And it's mm-hmm. sickening. Yeah. 
Well, I think we, we agree there's a lot of bad stuff happening, and this is just one example of it, but it's really a transfer of wealth from, I think, the very, very, you know, the executives, the millionaires and billionaires that are running these schools, of, and it's taking money from the taxpayer and handing it right into their pockets. So we appreciate your thoughts. Yeah, Omar. and Omar, I think you hit the nail on the head about how, especially for something like education, this, this is supposed to be a public good. This is something that's good for society, good for all of us, and the idea that you know, college is something that a small group of people are going to make money on. That just, that seems wrong to me. I think we got to get it back to a place where this is something affordable and accessible for everybody. So thank you so much for your call, Omar. So Alexis, you know, we talked a little bit about um, the schools that are up for forgiveness um, this July 1st deadline. Could you just walk through a little bit more about, you know, for people that maybe, um, are, are listening and, and are thinking, man, I went to a school that ripped me off like that, or for people that are waiting for forgiveness, sort of, um, you know, what can folks do? Who should they contact? Um, and, you know, is, is there any path forward? Well, I think what, one thing we've seen is prior to Obama leaving office, there were probably, I think it was 16,000 folks um, in the tens of thousands of folks who had their debt canceled. And there were a lot more than that, you know, several 10,000 more who had their uh, debt forgiveness approved but had not been processed yet. Um, the only thing that Betsy DeVos, Secretary of Education, has committed to is processing the applications that the Obama administration had already approved, which, of mm. course, she's committing to doing that. If she didn't do that, she would be sued. I think she she's would be breaking gonna, the law. She would be breaking the law. <laughs> I think she's going to be sued regardless, but she's trying to, I suppose, avoid a lawsuit. Now, people, if people are listening to this and, and they're thinking to themselves, I attended a school like this. I believe they broke the law. You still have the right. Nothing has changed in terms of your right to get your debt canceled. Now, the question is, is Betsy DeVos going to give you your money back? Um, that's an open question. The only thing, again, she's committed to is processing the approvals for debt forgiveness that Obama, um, the Obama administration did at the end of the end of his term. So I think people should absolutely continue to apply. You can um, find information about this by, by the Department of Education has a website, Federal Student Aid, and it has a bunch of information about this. The term that I would encourage you to Google is borrowed borrower defense. Mm -hmm. So if you Google that, you should probably get on the first or second hit a page that's Federal Student Aid is the official government website. You don't have to pay any money. There are a lot of scam sites out there mm -hmm. that are trying to get you to pay the money to apply for debt forgiveness. You don't have to pay any money. The Department of Education has this. But I think more important than that, we're really concerned about Betsy DeVos not granting any further debt forgiveness because she's got a lot of friends in mm -hmm. the for-profit industry. One she of her hired some of them. She hired some <laughs> of them. One of them has since left. Um, the other one is still there. His name is Robert Itell. He had taken a leave of absence from a, being the lawyer for a for-profit chain called Bridgepoint, but he is absolutely still there. He is overseeing this pause in that borrower defense role we talked about before. And so this is a great thing when you're calling your senator about health care. Once you're done telling the staffer about health care, you could say, I need just one more minute of your time. I'm really concerned about how close Betsy DeVos is with these 
predatory for-profit colleges Mm -hmm. and i want to know what betsy devos is going to do to help scam students and i want to know what you're going to do to make sure that secretary devos is helping students who got scammed um there have been a lot of letters to Mm -hmm. devos so you know the staffer answering your call may be able to say hey we just signed a letter Mm -hmm. to her but they may not it depends on what state you're in there's only been a single republican so far that has spoken out about this and that is dean heller out of nevada wrote a letter with senator Catherine Cortez Masto, the Democratic senator from Nevada. He's the only Republican so far so mm-hmm. that's spoken out about this. So when you're calling your senators about um, about health care, this is a good thing to mention at the end. Can we mention the Capitol switchboard on this? Absolutely. So that number is 202-224-3121. That will connect you to the to the U.S. Congress. You punch in your zip code, and they will everyone, connect I, you to your I senator. I want everyone to know that Alexis just rattled that off <laughs> by memory. Now, this I is an activist right here. <laughs> so one more time. 202-224-3121, and get ready to enter your zip code when you get connected. Awesome. So everybody, call the Hill. Call your senators. And for folks that are looking just for a little bit more information on sort of uh, what this is about, where they can learn about borrower defense or for-profit colleges, where can they um, find you, find your materials, Alexis? So you can find me on Twitter if you're on Twitter. I'm at Alexis Goldstein. But uh, my organization's website is ourfinancialsecurity.org, and we've written a lot about this issue, and we have a lot of materials on there. Um, So that's another place that you can go to find out about this. I should also shout out, and I don't know their website off the top of my head, but you could Google it, the Project on Predatory Student Lending Mm -hmm. out of Harvard is a group of lawyers who are probably, you know, who have done a lot of suing of Betsy DeVos, and they have a lot of materials on their website as well. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Alexis. Uh, This is the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be back talking healthcare soon, but make sure you call that Capitol switchboard. Get in touch with the Hill. Welcome back, everyone, to the Leslie Marshall Show. My name is Maggie Thompson. I'm with Generation Progress, and I'm your guest host for this hour. Uh, So we're going to use the last part of the show to talk about something that is on everyone's mind here in D.C. and across America today, and that is what on earth is happening on the Hill with the Republican Senate health care proposal. So uh, I have a fantastic guest in studio with us today, Emily Gee. She's a health economist on the health policy team here at the Center for American Progress. She also used to be at uh, HHS and was part of implementing the Affordable Care Act. So she's seen all different sides of this issue. So welcome to the show, Emily. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Well, before we dig in, just if folks have questions, things are moving really fast on this, feel free to call in with any questions. Uh, Again, the number is 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. All right. Well, let's dig in. So the news just broke, I I think maybe like an hour ago now. That's right. (laughs) Mitch McConnell is delaying the vote. (laughs) uh, Great, exciting. But what does this mean for this fight and the Trump care proposal? Sure. So we've seen the Senate trying to work on a very abbreviated timeline. We, uh, the public, didn't see any version of the bill text until last Thursday, um, and we had thought that McConnell would want to hold a vote this coming Thursday, that is, just two days from today. Um, But the news just broke that he isn't able to get the votes to go ahead and move the bill forward. Um, So what he has said is that the bill would not get a vote until after the 4th of July recess at the earliest. So is this um, is this a win? Is this uh, like or, or uh, is this a pause and we got to keep fighting? Sure. So it would be very premature to call this a win. <laughs> I think it, what it does show is how difficult it will be for the Republic, 
Republicans to achieve some sort of consensus on health care. You've got various factions of the of the party wanting different things, moderates like Susan Collins, Rob Portman, um, and Capito in West Virginia wanting uh, to take care of their home states. You've got others like Mike Lee of Utah pushing for more drastic Medicaid cuts on top of the $770 billion of cuts already in the bill. Uh, and I think it will... You know, maybe difficult to find a deal. On the other hand, we saw in the House there were many holdouts early in the process, mm-hmm. conservatives and moderates. And in the end, they all sold out for um, you know pet projects that they got included in the final bill and voted for it in the end. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I hope everybody is ready to buckle up and keep fighting past the Fourth of July holiday. This is not over yet. Um, and can you just give us the top lines as people are thinking about calling their senators, um, talking about this bill for the Senate proposal of Trump care specifically? Like what's what are the top line, just terrible things that this bill does for folks that haven't been following this version? So there are a number of things this bill does that are very bad for people, regardless of what type of insurance you have. Uh, I think up and up, up above all, the most important thing to do is keep calling, keep the pressure on, mm-hmm. because whether this bill passes or not is not just a matter of what the senators decide it's what they hear from their constituents so i think the top lines are that first of all the congressional budget office says that 22 million people would lose coverage by the year 2026 relative to what would happen under the aca these are people who would no longer have access to uh you know life-saving hospital treatments paid for by an insurer they wouldn't have the lower negotiated rates that you would get through an insurance plan um, these are people who might have to go forego coverage, sorry, forego care because they don't have coverage for it. And that would be absolutely devastating for them and their families. Beyond that, people who remain covered would also see their coverage eroded. Um, mm-hmm. The Congressional Budget Office predicts that those in the individual market would have lower value plans, even if for some people the premiums went down, for others it would go up. Um, and all in all, people would have higher out of pocket costs. You know, there's no free lunch, someone has to pay for health care. And increasingly under the bill, it would be consumers. It's just unbelievable. 22 million people. Right. And I think the thing that's particularly worrying um, and that folks should make a point of saying when they call their senators is that it's not just how many get uh, lose coverage, but also who loses coverage. And it's going Mm -hmm. to be the sickest and the most vulnerable, the oldest Americans who lose coverage. And that seems um, very unjust. Absolutely. And it also seems I mean, what struck me so much about this particular version of this fight is how much this bill targets women and especially young women as you know uh thinking about you know my friends my peers like it it feels like there's so many parts of this bill that are personally targeting us that's right one of the provisions that was in the house bill that was very worrying that also made appearance in the senate bill was a provision to allow states to waive the coverage requirements um, of the ACA that forced plans to in the individual and small group markets to cover 10 basic things. And we're talking very basic things like hospital care, emergency department care, maternity, mental health. Under the Senate bill, states could waive that so that you might end up living in a state where maternity coverage is not included in the bill. This is unbelievable. Um, so, you know, when you were uh, working at HHS, at Health and Human Services, and you were implementing the Affordable Care Act, uh, you know, this was a long process that that uh, bill went through. And can you just talk a little bit about the differences in the process while you were sort of structuring that and helping to implement that versus sort of how the Senate Republicans and Mitch McConnell are trying to ram this through? It just feels like this process is unbelievably different. Sure. So I spent uh, about four years at the Department of Health and Human Services, well after the bill had passed, helping get people covered. And 
I was in charge of helping um, direct the department's outreach to the uninsured. Um, what we saw was over the course of um, about six years, about 20 million adults gained coverage in the United States because of the ACA. Um, and the ACA was not, uh, you know, an easy thing for the Democrats in the in the Senate or the House to pass. It was years in the making, dozens and dozens of, dozens of hearings, uh, expert witnesses coming to the Hill to testify, multiple CBO scores and markups and committee hearings. Um, in contrast, what we've seen in the in the Senate and the House is zero hearings to date, not a single one. Uh, the Senate has been very secretive. We've seen one draft of the bill. There are all sorts of closed-door meetings to which even members of the Republican Party are not invited. That's just unbelievable. And I think, you know, there's a couple states where if people are in those states right now, uh, you have been sort of in the weeds looking at this, seeing how many people would be um, kicked out of, off their health care coverage. Um, so could you just walk through, you know, we talked about the big national 22 million number, but, you know, what are the states where Republicans, senators are on the fence about this? And what what do people stand to lose in those states? Sure. So the national number, 22 million people losing coverage is at the same time, both staggering and almost so large as unfathomable. Um, so what we've done at the Center for American Progress, um, each time the CBO has scored the repeal bills is break that down state by state and district by district. Um, and even when you, you know, get down to something as small as a congressional district, you still have about 50,000 fewer people with coverage by wow. the year 2026. That's enough to fill a baseball stadium. That's like the size of my hometown. Yes. Yep. And bigger than mine. Yep. So <laughs> we're talking about a lot of people. We're going from about one in 10 Americans being uninsured today to about one in five lacking insurance in 2026. So this is something that will you know, affect everyone's community. Um, and I think you know, the states that would probably be hit hardest are especially those that expanded the Medicaid program. Mm-hmm. One of the things the bill would do was essentially end the um, enhanced federal funding for that very quickly, such that it would be unsustainable for a lot of states that have already opted to take that expansion to go ahead and keep moving forward with it. Absolutely. And, you know, we talked a little bit about um, just how how big the effect is still when you get on the state level. But I think also, you know, the states where um, Republicans are on the fence about this, I mean, hopefully it's all of them because the more we learn about this bill, the bigger a disaster it is. But Alaska, Maine, West Virginia, are there places where if there are listeners out there, you would say they really need to call their senators right now because they're um, sort of in the thick of it because of where they live? So I think the, some of the key states are going to be the ones you listed. Um, Alaska is a state that had expanded Medicaid. It's also a state that has very expensive health care just by nature of it being a very rural and very remote state. Um, and the tax credits and the cost sharing reductions that are in the ACA would not appear in the same form in the House bill. In fact, there'd be zero cost sharing subsidies um, in the Senate bill, which means that for Alaskans, costs could get very expensive very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, other states that might be worried are those um, that rely heavily on Medicaid to help address public health problems, including the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, Appalachian states like Ohio, West Virginia um, would certainly feel a squeeze under per capita caps in the Medicaid program. Right. That's unbelievable. And I know that you talked a little bit about this, but just to really emphasize it for folks that are listening and thinking, well, you know, I get health insurance through my job, so I'm not one of those people. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lose my care. This doesn't affect me that much. How would would this affect people who are relying on employer coverage? 
So I think it's tempting to think that because you know you or I have employer-sponsored coverage, we, we'd be immune. But uh, there are you know most Americans have employer-sponsored coverage. About 150 Americans have coverage through the workplace. Um, but the dangerous thing about the way that the waivers for essential health benefits, those are those basic services I talked about earlier, um, hospital care, mental health care, uh, those requirements are linked to employer health care. Um, before the ACA, employers could put a lifetime or annual limit on your care. It might be, say, $6,000 a year, or it could be a million over your lifetime. If you're mm-hmm. someone who has some sort of catastrophic accident or some very expensive to treat type of cancer, if you have a baby who's born premature with um, you know, congenital heart problems, you could very easily run into those limits. Um, once essential health benefits are waived, those limits could come back because currently the law says that you can only place limits on things that are not covered under those 10 categories, essential mm-hmm. health benefits. But if suddenly states decide they no longer want to c- cover maternity care or they want to waive all essential health benefits, that means that employers could then put limits on those things. Got it. So, man, this bill just targets everybody. So we've talked right. about how this bill is terrible for... <laughs> yeah, important to emphasize, not, it's not just that they could put limits. Um, a consulting firm actually polled employers and said, if you could, would you put limits on coverage? And it turns out about 10 to 15 to 20% of employers say that, yes, they would place annual lifetime limits on their workers' coverage if they could. Wow. Wow. It's unbelievable. So it targets women. It targets people who are sick and with pre-existing conditions. Um, let's talk a little bit just about how, because I I know that there have been some changes in some of the formulas in the bill so that it really um, changes the sort of ratio of what young people will pay. But this bill is, is still in really um, so many ways terrible for young people in our generation because uh, of this sort of uh, instability and financial instability it could um, put in place for young people. Can you talk a little bit about sort of for a young person who's moving around and switching jobs a lot and that type of thing, how this would impact them? So I'm glad you mentioned switching jobs because that's a place where I think young people will get hurt by the provisions in this bill. The health insurance marketplace that the ACA created is for some people a place where they go for coverage for years on end. It might be really retirees, entrepreneurs, uh people who um, you know, have a job that doesn't offer health insurance, but it can also be a bridge between coverage types. Young people change jobs a lot. They go to school, go to work, go back to grad school, uh, move around, get married. And so they're often changing their health insurance coverage mm-hmm. just because of their life circumstances. Um, and without affordable coverage and, and cost sharing reductions available through the individual marketplace, um, that bridge will not be the same bridge it's been before. Absolutely. They can even afford it. Absolutely. And, you know, we were talking all the time about all these structural barriers to millennials sort of achieving that financial security. And it just feels like the Senate Republicans are just throwing another barrier in the way. And, uh, you know, we also talk a lot about youth entrepreneurship and how, I mean, who's going to, you know, leave their job with that guaranteed health care and go and start that business they've been thinking about for years if it means that they'll lose their health care and might not be able to get coverage because of a pre-existing condition. Right. I think the in some sense the marketplace represents not just, you know, means of paying for coverage, but also guarantee that if you ever lose your job or want to start a new one or um, you know leave school without having something in hand, then you have a way to get ensure that you have coverage, um, even if you don't have a, you know a workplace that will pay for it or a Medicaid safety net to fall into. Mm-hmm. So I think 
so the fight's not over yet. No, definitely not. <laughs> we still need people to take action, keep up the pressure. Can you talk through a little bit about what's um, happening this week and what folks should do, whether they're in D.C. or in a home state, to fight back and where they can find the resources to do that? Sure. So over the next week, there's going to be action happening here in D.C. as well as um, all over the country, particularly because next week is a recess week for the Senate. Um, but recess doesn't mean rest. So what everybody <laughs> should do is both if you're, That's you're a great... you know, if you're somebody here in D.C., um, there are a couple of rallies planned at the Capitol, I think. I think we're doing a human chain around yes, the Capitol. Yes, human chain around the Capitol to give the Capitol a big hug. I'll be there. And let it know if you're close to need... D.C., drive in tomorrow, Thursday at 5. <laughs> yes, um, and I think there'll be a great crowd, very energized crowd. Um, again, this isn't a victory, so I think it's important to show that people care about health care and mm-hmm. show that force. Next week is recess, which means that senators will be home. So do what you can to show up at town halls, show up at... Um, events around, uh, you know, your hometown or your home state. Um, keep up that pressure. Make contact with district offices. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you, you know, you're far away from your your home con- uh, district or, um, you know, not not around during that time, then there are all sorts of online resources. Phone calls and faxes are really effective. Um, and here at CAP, we've actually also got a very handy website called TrumpCareToolkit.org, where all you have to do is log in and click a button to tweet or call your senator. Oh, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that's been so surprising to me about this is people are blowing up the D.C. phones, but call your district offices, too. And also, if there's one that's close enough to drive, even if your senator isn't home or your House member isn't home and they aren't doing town halls, since a lot of these folks are hiding out, just showing up at that district office and asking to talk to a staffer can make such a big difference. Yes. All all it takes is about 10 seconds. Absolutely. One day I was sitting on the hill in a member's office and the phone was literally ringing about every 10 seconds. Um, so it, I think it was great to hear that, but we've got to keep up that pressure. Just got to keep pummeling them. And I think, too, if, if, uh, if folks are on Twitter, that is also something. A lot of those Twitter accounts are actually run by members themselves. So that's right. a great way to get through that staff barrier and make sure that they are seeing um, what you are concerned about. And I think one of the most impactful things you can do, particularly for healthcare, because it's such a personal issue, is share your personal story. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about how this worries you, how it could hurt you, and how it could hurt your family. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one more time for the resources that uh, or the website where people can get resources and find nearby town halls and fight back. Uh, So TrumpCareToolkit.org is the website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. That was Emily Gee, a health economist here at the Center for American Progress. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show, everyone. I'm your guest host, Maggie Thompson with Generation Progress. And we're going to go to Patrick Gavin at Talk, New- Talk Media News, who's got the latest on what's happening here in D.C. with this health care bill. Patrick? Hey, how you doing? Good. How, how, how's it going? It's a busy day. It's been a very busy day. Uh, Mitch McConnell just announcing that he's going to delay the, the, the final vote uh, or just even bringing this to a, to a, work, uh, a work in progress. Uh, until after the July 4th recess, which is, I think, uh, a necessary step for him because he knows he doesn't have the votes, but uh, does not, I don't think, uh, bode well for the actual ultimate success of this bill because all these Republican senators are going to head back um, to their district and be met with some pretty angry constituents. I mean, this this bill remains very, very unpopular. Um, and while I think it's, it, it was necessary for Mitch McConnell to do this, I think that, you know, this might be the beginning of the end for the Republican efforts on this issue. 
Wow. Yeah. So it looks like uh, town halls, events in in district this this weekend is going to be where um, the action is, where people need to be pushing. That's exactly right. I think that it's going to be, um, you know, I, I think that this is going to put some some wind in the seals of, of the resistance. I think, you know, healthcare has always been something. I think, especially after the House passed it, that a lot of the de- Democrats and, and their base have worried about. And so I think that, you know, this is going to be a real make it or break it moment for for those folks who want to stop this. Yeah, absolutely. And has has there been any talk about um, changes in the bill? Um, changes that you know, I know the CBO score just came out yesterday. Or is this just purely um, buying time just to to round up the votes? No, I think I think Mitch McConnell is completely amenable to tweaks and changes. Um, I mean, the the problem is is going to be, you know, whether or not they're going to they're going to meet uh, the necessary threshold. I mean, Susan Collins even saying today that you know, look, I don't think that tinkering with the bill is going to solve my overall problems with it. But then, I mean, mm-hmm. the nice thing about the CBO score for Republicans is that it did. Uh, provide some kind of cost savings in terms of deficit reduction. And so that actually, I mean, this is probably fairly sinister, but it gives Mr. Connell about $200 billion um, to toy around with in terms of kind of kickbacks and little pet programs here and and all sorts of ways to essentially bribe members of his party to come along with this. So he does have some wiggle room with that, um, but some larger issues will still remain. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that, you know, the the vote's been delayed. There are protests happening across D.C., so we will definitely stay tuned um, to see what happens next.